Today we are in uh, Romans uh, chapter 7 still, as we will be for a while. Um, and uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, a couple weeks ago we looked at the first six verses of chapter 7 which really kind of ties in with uh, chapter 6. It, it introduces new thoughts, the idea of the law, which is uh, the Mosaic law, and uh, that subject is the one that Paul is dealing with throughout chapter 7. But the first six verses of chapter 7 really also tie in with the things that Paul has been saying in chapter 6 very closely. Uh, and then beginning in chapter 7, verse 7, uh, he begins to, to really elaborate more on this question about the law. And uh, so that's where we are. And last week, uh, we really just did some in, a bunch of introductory stuff uh, as we prepare to try to get a, gra- uh, get a grasp on Romans 7. So we talked about uh, some principles of interpretation and we talked about some of the things that we need to understand as a kind of a foundation before we uh, before we really tackle Romans 7. So last week was was really a lot of introductory information, and uh, hopefully uh, I didn't put you all to sleep, uh, but uh, hopefully today we can we can get more into the meat of the passage. So what I'd like to look, do today is I'd like to. Uh, review and kind of think about some of the introductory stuff we said last week, uh, add a few more thoughts to that, uh, and clarify a couple of things that I think I, I didn't say very well last week, so I'd like to clarify a couple of things. Don't nod your heads now, don't agree with me there. Uh, and, then, uh, and then pick up with uh, uh, understanding uh, verses 7 through 13, or through 12. Uh, let's read beginning in verse 1, so we get the context again. Uh, Read from verse 1 down through verse 12, and and then we'll review some of the things we talked about last week and go on from there. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay. Now, there's a ton of stuff in here. Uh, uh, so... Uh, We've got a lot to, lot to talk about. It's, uh, there's actually so much in here, it's very difficult for me to kind of organize my thoughts. So uh, hopefully what, I, what we talk about today will be at least semi-coherent for you. Uh, so, uh, but let's go back and think about some of the things we talked about last week. And uh, unless you, if you've got a good memory, you can remember some of the stuff or if you took notes. But unfortunately, you can't look at your passage and... Uh, and uh, and get a lot of tips because we didn't really expound on the passage much last week. We just answered a, or talked about a bunch of questions and that sort of thing to lay the foundation. But what do you remember are some of the things we talked about last week? Okay. And who is um, the eye that he keeps talking about. Okay. And what is the experience in verse 9? Okay. Great. Good. Yeah. Three things that, that become the, the grid or the framework that we use to understand Romans 7. So these are three questions we need to answer in order to properly understand Romans chapter 7. And the first one is, what is the law that he's talking about? Okay. And we, we talked about this uh, mainly a couple weeks ago, but a little bit last week, that the law that he's referring to here is primarily the Mosaic law. Now, the Mosaic, so the law that was given at Mount Sinai to the children of Israel, that's what he's referring to. So the Ten Commandments and the, and the attendant laws, etc., that God gave at Mount Sinai. Now, we need to understand that that the law that was given to Moses and to the children of Israel at Sinai and the children of Israel themselves serve kind of as a paradigm for all mankind. They kind of they serve as a representative of all mankind, if you will, or a picture of all mankind. So that so that when we read about Israel in the Old Testament, and we read about the experiences of Israel in the Old Testament, we're able to draw application from those things in our own lives because they are in one sense representative of us, even though their own experience was the experience that they had was unique. Okay, so the so the law that he's talking about here is the law of Moses. But we can from that draw applications and think more in terms of a more general idea of God's law uh, rather than just the law of Moses. But primarily we need to understand for interpreting Romans seven before we apply Romans seven. To interpret Romans 7, we need to understand that he's talking about the Mosaic Law. Okay. Then the second question that we uh, need to wrestle with is the question of who is the I that, he is, that he's talking about there in the chapter. And then the third question, which we'll get to today, 
is the question of what does he mean in, in verse 9? What's he talking about in verse 9? If we, can, if we can get some handle on those three questions, then we'll be better, in a better place to understand what Paul is trying to communicate to us in Romans 7. Okay. So last week, in addition to those three general questions that we just talked about just now, we then talked about the question of who is the I? What did we say about all of that? Okay, okay. So there were several different ways that commentators or Bible students, uh, study, uh, students of Scripture understand the I. And one of them was the autobiographical. Uh, did I do it right? Okay. Uh, the autobiographical, in other words, Paul is just speaking exclusively about himself and his own personal experience. This is what I have encountered. This is what I have experienced. Paul's just speaking of himself. What's another way that, uh, that commentators look at it? We actually had four altogether. Let's see if we can remember what they are. Pardon? Okay. The, uh, uh, that is, sometimes it's called that. The Israeli... Uh, or the salvation historical. Okay. And, uh, and the idea behind the Israeli or the salvation historical interpretation is that, is that, that Paul is, just, is really primarily identifying with Israel. He's identifying with Israel's experience. So when he's talking about uh, before the law came and after the law came, etc. He's talking about Israel's experience before Sinai and after Sinai and what happened when the law came and that sort of thing. I should point out that, and I, I don't think I mentioned this last week, that the salvation historical view was pretty much, uh, pretty predominantly the view of the early church fathers up until about the fourth century. Uh, uh, the end of the uh, uh, end of the uh, fourth century. Uh, that that was the view that was pretty much held by most of the church fathers uh, up uh, up into the early uh, actually uh, Augustine's uh, early views of the chapter also included the salvation historical approach. Later in Augustine's experience, uh, later in his life, he switched to primarily the autobiographical view. Uh, and the reason he did that was because he was in a controversy with the Pelagians, uh, the heresy of the Pelagians, and he was in a controversy with them, and it worked better for him to interpret it autobiographically in order to confront the Pelagians. And that really became pretty much the predominant view uh, of, uh, of most scholars uh, up through into the Reformation, including all, most of the Reformation guys uh, took the autobiographical view. Okay, but this was really the early view. Okay, and and the idea there is that that Jews really identified themselves. They they had a sense that they were in one sense that they that they were part of the whole nation's experience. So that Jews even today in the Passover they they confess during in the Passover individual Jews 
uh, have a, 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 a liturgy type of thing that they go through where they confess that they were slaves in Egypt and they personally identify themselves as having been slaves in Egypt and then having been delivered through the Passover. Okay, And so the idea is that that, that way of thinking is, is at work here in Paul's writing here in chapter uh, 7. What's the third way? Okay, that's everybody, not believers, everybody. Yeah, okay. That's what we call the existential view. Okay. And this is everybody's experience. Okay, and uh, and as I mentioned, each one of these views has strengths in the chapter, the things you find in the chapter that give it some, some credibility, but each one of these views has some difficulties or challenges associated with it. The existential view has some strengths with it. Most of us can identify with some things in Romans 7, but there are some things in Romans 7 that some people will say, well, I've never experienced that. That's not my experience. And so that would be one of the difficulties with the existential. And what's the fourth view? Okay. Okay, that the I is referring to Adam and Adam and Eve, okay? And their experience in the garden, that they were alive before the law came. They were alive before God said, you shall not eat of the tree. And then the the commandment came and then sin arose. The, The serpent enticed Eve through the commandment and deceived her and killed her, okay? So... So these are the four different views, and we talked about those in considerable detail last week, so I don't want to go over all that ground again. I do want to clarify a couple things that I said last week. One is what I tried to point out is that each one of these views has some strong support in the chapter, okay? So if you take any one of these four views, you're... You're not out in left field, theologically speaking, okay? Uh, and and I, that was what I was trying to communicate. What I think I said was, I said, I don't care what you believe. Well, that sounds a little flippant. I do care what you believe. And and I have a position that I think is is uh, argue, the arguable position and the best position to take. So I do care what you think. I didn't mean to sound flippant on that, that it doesn't make any difference what you believe. It does make a difference what we believe. And how we interpret Romans 7 has a bearing then on how we understand Romans 6 and how we understand Romans 8. Okay, So it really is important. I didn't want to imply that it's not important. But what I'm trying to say is, that you can have any one of those four views and uh, and still be well within the pale of orthodoxy, if you want to call it that, and and you can still be a a, a, a good strong believer and uh, and one who recognizes and acknowledges the authority of Scripture with any one of those views. So uh, I didn't mean to imply that it doesn't matter, but uh, it's not one of the it's not one of the hills we want to die on, so to speak. Okay. The other thing I wanted to clarify is, is, that, I, uh, is that I indicated that, that basically I hold to this salvation historical view in conjunction with the autobiographical view. But I think the way I communicated it last week is that I predominantly take this view and, and this is kind of just thrown in on the side, the autobiographical view. And, and that probably wasn't a very good way of expressing it if that's the, if that's the impression you got. That basically the way I view it is that Paul is speaking 
autobiographically about his experience, but that he's doing so in identification with the experience of Israel. So there are some things in the passage that we cannot, there's no way, given the information we have about Paul in the New Testament, there's no way in certain places in Romans 7 we can say, oh, we see this in Paul's experience. There's some things in Romans 7 we can't say dogmatically Paul experienced. But we can see a parallel either autobiographically or salvation historically throughout the passage. So, in my mind, the best way to approach the passage is to see it as Paul is speaking autobiographically. He's speaking about himself, but in his mind he is associating himself with Israel and with Israel's experience in receiving the law at Sinai. Okay? So, you'll see how that unfolds as we go forward through the chapter. At this point, your head may be spinning. You're going, I don't have no clue what you're talking about, Rick. But as we go through chapter 7, hopefully, you'll pick up on some of these things. Okay? So, uh, anything else we talked about last week that you want to mention? Okay. Um, a couple other things then by way of introduction, and, and then we'll dig into these actual verses, verses 7 through 12. And, uh, and this is something we talked about last week, but I just want to emphasize it again. That Paul has talked about, in chapter 6, Paul talked about, you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Okay? And that same idea comes out here in chapter 7. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. And what we need to understand about chapter 7 and chapter 8, of course, we're a long ways away from chapter 8, but what we need to understand about chapter 7 and chapter 8 is chapter 7 is descriptive of life under the law. Okay? That's what he's talking about. That's very clearly what he's talking about. He's talking about the experience of a person who's living under the law. And when we get to chapter 8, he will then contrast that with life in the Spirit. So chapter 8 is all about life in the Spirit. Chapter 7 is about life under the law. Now, when we get later into chapter 7, we're going to tackle head-on this big controversy uh, that you have in the church and people are always talking about this and debating this, the question of whether or not later in chapter 7, Paul is talking about a believer or an unbeliever. Okay, And I have a very strong opinion about that, which I will make clear as we go forward. Okay, But that's the big debate. Is it a believer or is it an unbeliever? Okay, But in one sense, it really misses the point even though it is important, and I'll explain when we get there why how you view that is important, okay? It misses the point. The real point is, are you under the law or are you in the Spirit? That's the issue. And Romans chapter 7 is describing for us the life of a person who is living under the law. Now, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, we'll tackle that question when we get there. But we need to keep this in mind that Paul is contrasting in chapter 7 what it's like to live under the law. How does the law affect a person when he lives under its rule, under its authority? Now, he's already established early in the chapter that that relationship to the law has been severed for the believer. 
But as we saw all the way through chapter 6 and in the first part of chapter 7, that even though our bondage to sin and our death to sin is, uh, the bondage to sin has been broken and, 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 our, uh, and we have died to sin, that it's still possible for us as a believer to live as though we had not died to sin. We can make that choice and live that way. And Paul makes that very clear in chapter 6. So perhaps in chapter 7, it's possible for a believer to live as though they were under the law, even though he says early in the chapter that in reality, as far as God's concerned, that bondage to the law has been broken. Okay, so so however you view it, either from the perspective of a believer or unbeliever, understand that what he's talking about is what is it like to live under the law? What does the law do? When, when we're living under the law. What does it do in our life? That's the issue that he's addressing. addressing. <clears throat> now, one other thing I want to make clear as we go forward is Paul's going to talk over and over and over again about this issue of sin and what sin does. He's, talking about, he's going to talk about sin being dead and sin being alive and all this sort of thing. We need to understand that Paul is using a rhetorical tool here. He's personifying sin. So as we read through chapter 7, it's very easy to think of sin almost as a person. Okay, He talks about sin doing this and sin doing that and, and sin dying and sin coming alive. And, and so it's very easy to think about sin as a person, but sin is not a person. Paul is simply using a rhetorical tool here of personification to demonstrate for us and illustrate to us how sin works in our lives and the power of sin and the dominion of sin in our lives. Okay, but so so we need to be very careful as we read through Romans seven that we understand that that Paul is personifying sin. He's 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 giving it. He's speaking of it as if it were a person Although we know for a fact that it's not a person. It's just part of what we are since we have chosen to rebel against God. Okay, so uh, so just keep that in mind and you'll see, uh, I hope, how that is important as we go forward. And one other thing I want to remind you of, uh, turn back to chapter five. Because this is important as we try to understand chapter 7 to remember that Paul is writing in a context. And when he wrote Romans, actually he dictated it to his secretary there in prison. Uh, he, he dictated Romans. But as he was dictating it, he didn't say, okay, this is chapter 5, verse 17. You know, he just dictated it and it was just written and there were no verse divisions and there were no chapter divisions. Okay. And what happens is we go through Romans and we study it in depth and we look at a few verses at a time. We tend to forget some of the things Paul's already said that to him as he's sitting there in his prison cell dictating this uh, letter or as he's sitting there uh, uh, wherever he was dictating the letter, uh, he, you know, he's not he's not making these divisions. He's thinking these th- things through in an, in an orderly manner in his own mind. So things that he said earlier have a bearing on the things he's saying now, and it's easy for us to forget that. So I want you to look at chapter 5 because uh, this will become important. And uh, in verse 12, remember we've talked about this. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, 
and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. So he's talking about Adam's sin there, remember? And he's talking about how through Adam, death passed to all men, okay? Uh, because all sin. But then he says in verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. We're not going to rehash all this. Just want to remind you of it. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. I just wanted to point that verse out to you and remind you that Paul said that between Adam and Moses, sin was still in the world even though there was no law. This is important to remember. So sin was a reality that was present in the world and through that sin came death. So it was there, but, but when the law came, something happened to sin. Okay, That's what he's saying. And, uh, and then when we go over to chapter, five, chapter 7, verse 5, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, I want to remind you of this verse where he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So he talks about the fact that even before the law came, we had these sinful passions or we had these sinful desires and they were there in us. But when the law came, it aroused those passions. It it kind of brought them to the forefront. So one of the things we need to understand very clearly is that sin was always present with us before the law came. So there was sin present with Israel in Egypt. And when they first came out of Egypt in those first months before they got to Sinai, they were still sinners. Okay. But then the law came and God came down on the mountain. He spoke audibly to the whole nation and gave the Ten Commandments there in Exodus chapter 20 audibly to the whole nation. And the whole nation heard his commandments verbally. And particularly, he emphasized to them the issue of having no other gods before him. He did this audibly. Remember, they got all freaked out and shook up and they said, Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. Okay, that was when he gave the Ten Commandments. Okay. Sin was present in Israel before that. But what Paul is saying is once the law came, something happened with sin. And that's what he's talking about in chapter 7. And so that's where we're going. So now Paul has said in the previous verse, verses, and, and back in chapter 6, he's talked about how the law came in, he said, so that transgression would increase. Okay. So, one of the reasons that God gave the law, or one of the things that happened in God giving the law, is that transgression increased. Now, we've drawn a distinction between sin and transgression, remember? Sin is just kind of any general missing of the mark. But transgression is a specific, conscious disregard of a known commandment. Okay. And so what he says is transgression increased when the law came. 
And actually, that was one of the purposes of the law was that it would that transgression would increase. Now, God had a reason for all this, and we'll explore all this as we're going through the chapter. But the question that naturally comes to our minds then is: Is the law sin? Is the law evil? If when the law came, it actually, as we've talked about a number of times already, it actually provoked or aroused my sinful passions and caused us to sin more, is there something inherently evil or sinful about the law? That's the question that comes up. And that's the question Paul is going to address here. How do we... How do we know that the law is not sin? And, and Paul is very emphatic. In verse 7 he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he doesn't hesitate for a second. He doesn't go on for verses and verses explaining why it's not and then conclude at the end that it's not. He starts right off from the bat and he says, No, no way, never. You know, Translators translate this different ways. Some translate it, God forbid. But it's very clear that Paul's negative here is very forceful. The law is not evil. Now, how do I know the law is not evil? Paul has said it's not evil. And when we get to the end of the section in verse 12, he'll conclude quite forcefully that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But how do I know that? That's what verses 7 through 11 are all about. They're explaining to us how it is that the law is good but when it comes, when we get the law, the result is transgression increases. Okay? So that's what he's trying to explain to us. And what happens then, what happened with the law when it came to Israel in the wilderness? is it revealed to Israel some things about themselves that they could never have known when the law had, before the law had come. So God came to Mount Sinai and He spoke on Mount Sinai and He spoke to the whole nation and they were all there at the foot of the mountain. The fence was around the mountain to keep, to keep them from touching the mountain. But they were all there and God spoke out of the mountain. There was the thunder and the fire and, all, and they were all fearful. And God gave His Ten Commandments and He reiterated to them the importance of of having no other gods before him. And then what did they do? They built a golden calf. Just within weeks of having heard God speak audibly to them as a nation. Now, Israel, when they came out of Egypt, uh, many of them came out bringing idols of Egypt with them. So idolatry was not a new thing to them. Sin was present with them, but they had no real keen awareness of how deadly this thing was. And it was kind of an individual thing. Some came out burying their idols or whatever, but there was nothing organized about it. But what happened after the law came in, what is it, chapter 30 of Exodus then, they they institute or establish an institutional idolatry, right? As a nation, they come together and they create a golden calf. And as a nation, they agree together, this is our God and this is what we will worship. 
So what happened after the law came is that Israel as a nation coalesced together in a grand act of idolatry. This is what the law does. It provokes in us this inner rebellion against God. And it's absolutely important that we understand that. And it's important if for, for, for many people to come to Christ. They have to understand this dimension of sin. Because we don't really realize until the law comes, we don't really realize how powerful and how dominating sin is in our life. So we'll, we'll explore this more as we're going on. But this is the question then. Is the law sin? And Paul says no. And here's why it's not. He says, because he said, I would not have come, verse 7, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, Paul's actually saying two things here. One, he's making a, a general statement, and then he's launching into an explanation of his general statement. And he uses two different words here for the, for, that we translate in our Bibles, no, K-N-O-W. Okay? He uses two different words here. And in the first case, he uses the Greek word, the root uh, Greek word, gnosko. Okay? And that word of knowing has the idea in it of not simply intellectual knowledge or awareness of, but personal experience with. Okay. Uh, an intimacy with. So, it's, a, it's the kind of word that's used in the Bible when it talks about a man knowing his wife or a man knowing a woman. Okay? And clearly, it's a, that's a reference to the sexual union. So that a man not only has this kind of superficial acquaintance with a woman, but he enters into this intimate experience with the woman. Okay? And that's the word that he, that's the first word that he uses in this verse. So Paul is saying, I would not have had this deep, personal, experiential knowledge of sin had the law not come. And then the question comes, well, why not? How does that work? How is it that Sin was in me, but there's a sense in which I wasn't deeply personally experiencing it and aware of it in this deep, intimate way until the law came. And that's what he launches into then in the next few verses to explain. So his next statement is, for I would not have come to know about the law. The about is added by your translators there because the word know there is the other word for know. Okay, and it is the it is the more can I use this term more superficial knowledge. Okay, it's the knowledge about, it's knowing the facts of. Okay, so he says I would not have had this experiential knowledge of sin unless the law came. Now, when the law came, it told me about coveting. It gave me the facts. It told me coveting was wrong. Okay, but this is the this is not the experiential knowledge. This is the 
the just kind of more informational or factual knowledge, okay? So how do we get from that second knowledge, the factual knowledge of verse 7, to that first knowledge of verse 7, the intimate knowledge? That's what he explains in the following verses. So the law came and it informed me about covetousness. And so now I am informed. Now, before we explore how he gets from from uh, the uh, the know of facts to the know of experience, before we explore how we get from here to here, I want to ask ourselves another question and deal with another question. Then we'll come back to this one. And that's simply the question of why does Paul choose covetousness? I brought this question up. Remember last week we said, what are the questions you have from this passage as you read it? And we came up with half a dozen or more different questions that pop into our mind as we read this passage. And one of them that pops into my mind is why does Paul choose the tenth commandment of the Ten Commandments he could have chosen. Why didn't he chose you so I have no other gods before me? Why didn't he chose you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery? Those are the biggies, right? When you think of the Ten Commandments, you think of the biggies. And I always kind of think of the of the Tenth Commandment as kind of an appendix on the end. You know, God kind of comes down through the nine and they go, oh yeah, there's one other thing. You know, this little thing over here, covetousness. But Paul chooses that one as his paradigm for the law. He uses covetousness as his illustration of the whole law. Why does he do that? It operates under the surface. Covetousness operates under the surface. Okay, great. It's kind of the extreme point. Okay, good. So what we actually discover when we get to the Tenth Commandment is that it really touches on the issue that Paul is after here. Is that sin is not merely these external actions, but it's really internal. And the Jews understood this. So actually it was quite common for the Jews to use the Tenth Commandment as a paradigm for the whole, command, for the whole law. Because to them, all sin resulted from evil desires. James talks about that, doesn't he? In, the God, in his epistle there at the end of the New Testament, he talks about how all these actions, they come out of these passions, these inner passions in us. Jesus talks about how the, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, right? So really, the Tenth Commandment is really one of the biggies. Because what the Tenth Commandment does is it exposes the inner desires as even being wrong. You see, the other commandments are largely external. It's interesting when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says to him, what good thing can I do that I might inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he says, well, which commandment are you talking about? As if he gets to pick and choose. you know. And so Jesus lists off the uh, second part of the Decalogue, the part that relates to, to, to our relationships with others. 
do not murder, do not commit adultery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he listles off. And at the end, he throws in the one about love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Well, those are all outward things, right? And so what does the rich young ruler do? What does he say? I've done all that. And then what did Jesus do? He goes to covetousness. He says, okay, fine. Sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. And come follow me. And the guy went away sad. Because Jesus had touched on the core issue of the man's true desires. He touched on the issue of covetousness. And the guy was covetous. And he went away sad. What happened to that guy? He went through Romans 7. He thought he was doing pretty good. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, you know, I've got all this pretty much under control, so there's probably just one thing left I need to do and I'll know I've got eternal life. And he went smack into the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And so what the law, what the, what, the command, what the Tenth Commandment does is it reveals to us the spirit of the law. That it's not just the outward things, but it's a matter of the heart. And this is a pretty shocking revelation. Because most of us, at least before we were saved, we thought as long as we could put on a good front... As long as we, you know, were pretty good and we, you know, we didn't throw snowballs through our neighbor's windows, you know, and we didn't rob the local 7-Eleven when we were in there, you know, but we're pretty, you know, we're pretty decent people. We thought, okay, we're okay. We're going to heaven, you know, right? But then the law came and it said, well, the problem is deeper than that. The problem is not that simply that you do not rob banks. The problem is when you walk out in your walk out your front door and you look over at your neighbor's house and he's got a brand new Maserati sitting in the driveway, you want it. Now, I know you don't take it because you know you'd get thrown in jail for that. So you don't take it, but you want it. And that is enough to send somebody to hell. And that's what the law does. So Paul says, I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. So he picks this one commandment that really goes to the core of the inner being of, of my inner desires. Remember, he just talked about those inner desires in verse five, verse five, where he said that when the law comes, then then it arouses or stirs up those sinful passions. So I have these inner desires, these inner passions and it's just waiting for the law to come along. And when the law comes along, those inner passions just blossom. They just come to life. Okay? That's what he says. So, he says, the law said, you shall not covet. Now, I wouldn't have known about coveting had it been for the law. I'm so preoccupied with do not murder and do not commit adultery that I haven't even been worrying about what's down deep inside my heart. But then the law came and it said, hey, that down there, see that? That too is sin. And he goes, oh man, I didn't even know about that. 
So now the law has exposed something deep down inside of him that he didn't know existed. Or if he knew it existed, he didn't know it was wrong. But now he knows it's wrong. But something even more cataclysmic happens, which is what? He not only has discovered this thing is wrong, but what happens? Verse 8. Yeah. 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 So what happens then is he says, sin, which was in me, it was down there, but it was kind of dormant. But then it found out I shouldn't covet. And I found myself coveting in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, I remember when. What the Lord said about, you know, when he gave the commandment there, thou shalt not covet. Remember, he lists off several things, you know, don't covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he lists off several things. There's all kinds of different ways we can covet. And Paul was doing pretty good until, bingo, the law said, you've got these evil desires down in you. And they just like, they just came to life. Now, they were always there. Okay. So, when Paul says they were dead, remember, he's, he's personifying. He's not saying that sin was not there. He's not saying sin did not exist. He's saying sin was dormant. Or as he said, <coughs> as he said earlier in Romans, he said, he said, sin is not imputed where there is no law. So, the idea there is, if sin was present... But something happened when the law came and sin just comes to life. I have a couple uh, nephews uh, and uh, one of them's just graduated from college, just starting his career. The other guy's uh, just out of high school a couple of years. <clears throat> but they both have a congenital defect that they didn't know about until about this point in time in their lives. Okay? And it had to do with their hips. And so they, I, I don't know what the disease was or what the, what the genetic disorder was, but it was something about their hips that no, we, nobody in that line of the family, this is in my wife's family, <clears throat> nobody in that line of the family has ever had this before, so nobody knew anything about it. Until this, the oldest of these two nephews uh, played baseball in college, and he was a catcher. Okay. You know what a catcher does for hours on end, right? Okay, he's down in that horrible, god-awful position for hours on end, okay? And it brought to light this genetic problem. And they actually thought they were going to have to replace his hip. Uh, eventually, they figured with him, they didn't have to do surgery that, that he could go for a number of years before he's going to have to have anything done about it. But within a year after that happened, his younger cousin... Developed the same problem. Now, he never played baseball, but he developed the same problem. And he's actually had to have surgery. He had hip surgery. I don't know what they did to him, <coughs> but he had hip surgery here a few months ago because he had this, this genetic disorder 
that nobody knew about. Okay? Well, that's what sin is. Sin is this genetic disorder, if you will. And what happens eventually is the law brings that disorder to light. See, in the hibbing side of the family now, we know there is this this gene passing around among some of the guys anyway. I don't know all the details, but we know this gene is out there. And the reason we know it's out there is because Kyle played baseball for four years in college. He's pretty good, too. <coughs> okay? And now we know it. Well, that's what the law does. The law reveals that that problem is there, that we didn't know was there. And not only reveals it's there, but it actually exacerbates it. It makes it worse. Okay? Now, the question is, what makes it worse? Does the law make it worse? No. That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say the law makes the problem worse. He says sin, taking opportunity through the law, makes it worse. <coughs> Excuse me. And he uses an interesting word there. It's a word that is used oftentimes in the Greek literature for a, it's a military term to refer to a beachhead. Think D-Day, okay? World War II, Omaha Beach, okay? <clears throat> what sin does is it hears the law and it establishes a beachhead. It takes opportunity to take over. Because it has now heard the law. So, What's happening here is the law came and gave me the facts about sin. And then sin took an opportunity from this knowledge of the facts about sin and moved me over here to where I have experienced sin's dominion in my life. And, and so what happened with Israel and what happened with Paul to some degree. Although, like I say, in Paul's testimonies that we read in the Scriptures, uh, in the New Testament, he's, <coughs> he, he doesn't really talk about this. So, it's hard to identify this directly with Paul's personal experience. But clearly, we can see it in Israel. And we see it also in many people's individual experience, whether Paul had this experience or not. <coughs> Is that when the law came... I learned something about sin I did not know before. And this is going to become clear as we go on through chapter 7. That before the law came, sin was there. You know, you go out and you talk to the average person on the street and you ask them if they're perfect, what are they going to tell you? You're going to say, no. You know, I know I'm not perfect. Yeah. Okay. Then ask them, are you a slave of sin? What are they going to tell you? I say, no, I'm not a slave of sin. You see, for the average person, sin is like this little, little dog they have on a leash, right? And, you know, it's, it's kind of annoying. You know, he runs around, gets his leash caught in your legs, and you trip and fall. He's kind of annoying. But when you're really annoyed, you can say, sit, and he'll sit. Or you say, roll over, and he'll roll over. You know, 
You can, you can make him do what you want. And that's how most people think about sin in their life. They think it's just this little annoying pet. They can't get in their way, but whenever they really want to, they can say, enough, and it'll stop. This is what the law does. The law teaches us that sin is not our pet. It is a vicious, ogreous master. And we thought it was our pet because for a long time it was dormant. For a long time it was just kind of asleep over here. And so we thought we were doing pretty good because he wasn't bugging us. But then the law came. And this is what Paul is telling us in these verses. When the law came, he says, before the law came, I was alive. And what he means by that is not that he was spiritually innocent. Obviously, that's not the case. Nor was it the case with Israel before the giving of the law. But they thought they were doing pretty good, right? But then the law came. And when the law came, this thing over here that was asleep that I thought was pretty tame and I thought I had it under control, it came awake. It woke up. It came to life. And it started producing a unique covenant of all kinds. And I died. I came to experience, in my personal experience, the power and the dominion and the death of sin in a way I had never known before. And I discovered that this thing over here that I thought was just my little pet and I could tell it whatever I wanted and it would just do it. So I could toy with it and if I wanted to sin, I'd sin. If I didn't want to sin, I wouldn't sin. I found out that that's not the case. Sin is this massive ogre, this giant that dominates and controls my life. And I have no choice. I will sin. I am its slave. And this is the discovery that Paul makes and that we make as we confront the law. We discover how sin is this master over us. So he says, but sin taking opportunity through the uh, commandment produced in me covenant of every kind. He says, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death to me. You see, in Leviticus, God said, here's the commandment. If you do this, you will live. In Ezekiel, God says, I gave you the commandment and I told you, if you do these things, you will live. In Matthew, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what may I do that I might inherit eternal life? And Jesus lists for him the commandments. So the the law promises us life. But there's always that condition on it, isn't there? If you do it. If you do it. If you do it. But then the law says you shall not covet. And I go, ooh. And coveting grows up and takes over. And I'm coveting here and there and everywhere. And, and I find out I can't do it. 
One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture about the glory of the law is Psalm 119. Remember it? 176 verses. Longest chapter in the Bible. When you're going through your Bible reading program, your daily reading program, you get to Psalm 119 you go, oh no, I've got to read 176 verses today, right? Okay? The longest chapter in the Bible. And David goes on and on and on about how I love thy law. Oh Lord, it's beautiful, it's glorious, it's wonderful. And on and on and on, right? That sure doesn't sound like somebody who thinks the law is sin. It's this glorious, wonderful thing. But read it again. And notice how many times through Psalm 119, as David is extolling the glory and the goodness of the law, he says, God, forgive me. And how many times he says, God, make me do thy law. In other words, yeah, he loves the law. It's a good thing. But he realizes that apart from, the, apart from God's power in his life, he cannot keep it. And he has failed and he needs God's grace and he needs God's forgiveness. All the way up to the very last verses of Psalm 119. So, so this law then has come and it has, it has provided this opportunity for sin. And sin has taken this opportunity. And you'll notice in verse uh, 11, he says, sin took opportunity. It's the same thing he said back in verse 8, but he words it differently here in verse 11. He says he took opportunity and through it, through the law, deceived me. And I asked myself this question. How does, how does sin deceive us through the law? Well, I can think of a couple ways. You may think of others, but I can think of two ways that, this, that sin deceives me through the law. And one we see exemplified in Eve's experience in the garden. God gave the law, you shall not eat of the tree. And then the serpent comes and he, he, the serpent Satan comes to Eve and says, did God say you shall not eat of the tree? You know, and, and then this discussion starts. And basically what Satan is saying to Eve about the law that God gave was God's holding out on you. Right? Isn't that what he was saying? God's holding out on you. you, said, you, you he says you'll die, but reality what will happen is you know, you'll become wise like him. And so God has given the law because he really doesn't like you and he's holding out on you. That's one of the things sin does with the law. The sin, the sin, when it hears the law, tells us God's holding out on you. How many people's impression of the Christian faith is that it's a list of do's and don'ts? You know, God's just out there and He really, you know, if there's anything fun, He doesn't want you to do it. So He prohibits it. Okay. So oftentimes when we hear the law, or when we're tempted to sin and then we're reminded of God's law, our response is, we don't think this consciously now because we're Christians, but inwardly our response sometimes is, you know, why? This is fun. This is good. This is pleasant. The Scripture speaks about the pleasures of sin, right? And so we think when God says, don't do this, that 
He's really holding out on us. That's one of the ways that sin deceives us. It tells us God is holding out on us. Another way that sin deceives us through the law, the first is how he deceived Eve. The second is how he deceived Paul. He makes us think that we we can become righteous and attain life through the law. See, that's what Paul thought. Paul thought, I'm pretty good. I'm Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, Jew, Jew, you know, I've got it made here. I'm doing well. You know, the rich young ruler. I'm doing good. And so another way that sin deceives us is it makes us self-righteous. It, it takes the law and makes us self-righteous. Makes us so we depend upon ourselves. And so now Paul is beginning to wake up. And I say Paul. Remember, I'm speaking in this sense that Paul is speaking of here. How the law works in the life of a person who is under the law. He's beginning to wake up to the realization that there's been this sleeping giant in his life. And the law has come and it has aroused the sleeping giant. And now he's really, really, really in big trouble. And that's what we're going to discover as we go on through chapter 7 now of what a desperate condition we as sinners are when we confront the law, when we live under the law, because it arouses in us this sin and makes us so cognizant and so aware, so experientially aware of our failure and of our judgment under God. Until ultimately we'll get to the end of chapter 7 and cry out in desperation, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? Next week we'll go on, pick it up verse 13.